We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Men from Moto. Digital strategies with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Intellect, vast, cool, and unsympathetic. Broadcast to the world with the uncanny help of Mana Deprived and FaceToFaceGames.com. Greetings, people of Earth. We're the Men from Moto, and you're listening to episode 91, Draft 101. My name is David Smill, and I have Travis Sowers on the line with me again with me this week. How are you, sir? I am handsome. How are you, David? I am um, kind of feeling tired after last night's uh, trick-or-treating adventures, but otherwise, it's fantastic. Excellent. Yes, we got a lot of kids. Life is good. We had a lot of cute costumes come around, and the my son came by the house twice looking for candy um, after leaving. So it was kind of fun to see him come by and be like i'm pretty sure i know who you are but that's pretty good my favorite was there was uh, a group of three very young girls that knocked on the door and two of them like were there and knocking and i could see another one kind of just slowly coming up the stairs behind them so i gave the first two their candy and the third little girl got up to the porch and then just sat down and stared at me and was just so tired it was like nine o'clock And then I could see your dad off in the shadows and he goes, she's really tired, man. And I just walked out and put some candy in her hands and she just kind of sat there and he came and picked her up and carried her off. It was absolutely adorable. And I I know that as soon as they got out, he was like, do you want to go home and go to bed, sweetheart? And she's like, no, need more candy. (laughs) That is amazing. Yeah, kids in Halloween are the best. My son is already asking when the next Halloween is and I had to explain (laughs) to him that it doesn't happen until... After Christmas, then after Easter, then after your birthday, then it's Halloween. Yeah. So, and everything to him is tomorrow mm-hmm. in the future, and everything in the past was yesterday. So it's like, is it Halloween again tomorrow? No, next year. But tomorrow, right? I'm like, it's in the future, kid. It, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So this week, a topic that you put together, mm-hmm. and uh, you've had a lot of people come by your chat, a lot of new people to magic or new people to arena or people maybe returning to magic because of arena. Um, and they've basically, and you get a few of these a day is people coming in and asking you, how do I draft? I have this gold. I have these gems. I going to Friday night magic. How do I draft? I have no idea. And maybe they come from hearthstone. Maybe they, they come from other card games. Um, so maybe they're familiar with the concept of how the mechanics of the draft work. But when it comes to putting together a functional playable deck, um, and they want to not go O three at their Friday Night Magic, or they don't want to go O three on Arena. Uh, we've put together, you've put together an outline and a little topic here for um, a crash course in in drafting. And I think we're going to use Arena as the the platform. Although this applies to Friday Night Magic, this applies to Magic Online, drafting at the kitchen table with your buddies. Um, th- this should get you started on your path um, to becoming a limited player. Hopefully we can give you some uh, some information. Basically, what Travis has done is he's scoured the internet for um, articles, uh, old podcast episodes from um, places like Limited Resources and things like that to try to boil down a lot of this information and give you a nice, concise guide to basically getting through your first couple of drafts and uh, maybe putting together a, a semi-playable deck here once in a while. So um, I, th- I think we're going to approach this 
assuming that the audience knows the mechanics of how the draft works. So you know that you open a pack, you pick a card, you pass it, uh, you can put as many basic lands in the deck as you want, um, you know, you can sideboard between matches if it's the best for you. All that kind of stuff we're going to assume that you know, and we're going to focus on how to get through the draft um, and and putting put your deck together. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that's an unfair assumption to make, but if you need more information about the mechanics of how the draft works from a rules perspective, um, or even just how do you go out and get a box to sit down with your buddies at the kitchen table, um, you can hit us up on Twitter or, uh, or on our streams. You can ask us those, those more specific questions. Yeah, I just I felt bad that there were so many people who were nervous about drafting or scared to spend their gems or their gold. They knew that it was the best way to build their collection on Arena, but they were just scared to jump in. And there's a lot of wonderful resources out there to to like help you become a better drafter. But I, I felt like there really wasn't a good first place to start listening or start watching or start reading to be like, hey, go listen to this. After an hour, you'll know the basics. So I figured since we don't have that, let's record it. I agree, and I think it's great. We can point them to this. Uh, we'll throw it up on Twitter, on the internet, and um, you know, hopefully it stays there till the end of time. As long as we can play Magic, we can point people back to this. So we're going to approach it as well from a uh, um, kind of... It, it doesn't matter what set you're drafting in. These rules will generally apply, um, and, and I think that's a good way to approach it. So even if it's 12 years down the road and we're, we're drafting you know, Time Spiral 2 or 3... Um, hopefully these rules should still apply or these lessons should still apply. And I also want to mention that we're covering the basics and we're not going super deep or covering every corner case. And also like there are certainly times to break the rules, but before you can decide what those are, you need to know the rules. So I want to set the rules down. Don't feel like if I'm saying something and you disagree with it, that you're necessarily wrong. Just understand that like there's some thought and some principles behind these from good magic players, including myself and Dave, but also some very excellent limited minds. And I'll try to point those out. A, a lot of the concepts I'm getting came for specifically from Brian Wong, formerly of Limited Resources, from Marshall and LSV, current hosts of Limited Resources, and from several articles by Melissa DeTora, who is a fantastic limited player as well. So like these are kind of the, the four people where a lot of this comes from, as well as me just banging my head against limited formats for the past 20 years. A, a good analogy, I think, to use for this is when you're starting to teach kids colors, you, you teach them eight colors. You don't bust out the box of 240 crayons and start talking about you know, Prussian blue and violet and mauve. It's more like, hey, this is red, this is green. This is the conversation we're having now. It's like, let's get introduced, let's get started. I think it's a great place to start, so why don't we just dive right in? So we'll start classes in session, draft 101. Travis Semulin Sowers is your professor. Let us begin. All right, everything will be covered in the lecture, but go ahead and start taking notes. First things first, for years and years, when people have said, how do I know what cards to pick in my draft? Everyone has said, bread is where it's at. Bread is an old acronym. It's been around for ages. I don't know who came up with it. It stood for bombs, removal, evasion, aggro, and duds. And it was telling you that what you should pick are bombs, removal, evasive creatures, creatures that are good at attacking, and then everything else. And I realized that I think that was actually true 20-ish years ago when all of the creatures were kind of poorly costed and about the same size and a 2-2 flyer would straight up win you the game if your opponent didn't kill it. 
But I also realized that there's there's two specific cards that were in the latest core set. One is Gravedigger, which is three and a black for a 2-2. Two, two. When it enters the battlefield, you get a creature from your graveyard and put it in your hand. There's also a creature in, in that latest set called Snapping Drake, uh, which is three and a blue for a 3-2 flyer. I don't think there's many scenarios where I would first pick a Snapping Drake over a Gravedigger. I think the Gravedigger is just a better card. Would you agree, Dave? Most of the time, yes. Like, pack one, pick one. If, if those are the two cards that are standing out, I don't think there's any competition. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're following Bread strictly, you would absolutely take the, the, the Snapping Drake and really not understand what you're doing wrong. So I decided I think Bread is actually wrong, and I'm going to teach you how to draft Brave instead of Bread. My acronym's a little wonky. But bear with me here, and I'm going to walk you through these categories, examples of them, and why it matters. When we're drafting, we're looking for bombs, removal, value, efficiency, curve, and then tricks. So it's six things to remember, but if you go brave, you've got most of it. And then there's the CT left over. Brave Connecticut? Maybe it's like a a city in Connecticut? I don't It is now. It is now. Okay. Brave Connecticut. So we need to identify what these things are first and foremost. So we'll start with bombs. Bombs are cards that will win you the game if they're unanswered. They're usually a creature, although a lot of planeswalkers count in this area too. Oftentimes they're evasive or difficult to deal with. Sometimes they have an enter the battlefield effect. I don't think that removal or card draw or anything else can be a bomb. It needs to be a card that will win you the game. There are some non-creature bombs, but for now we're just going to give you a couple examples of creature bombs. Again, this is purple. We'll talk about violet in draft 201. So some examples of bombs from past formats. Baneslayer Angel was three white white for a 5-5 flying, first strike, lifelink, Protection from Demons and Dragons. In all of the formats that was in, which was M10 and M11, if you played it and your opponent didn't kill it right then with a removal spell, you were winning that game. Uh, Dave mentioned as we were going through this Doom Whisperer, which is actually from a current set, Guilds of Ravnica. That's three black black for a 6-6 flyer. You can spend two life to surveil two, which means look at the top two cards. Uh, You can put them in your graveyard or reorder them on the top. This is another card that it's it's so cheap and evasive that you just slam it and it's going to kill your opponent if they don't kill it. Even if they do with the, the Doom Whisperer, you're going to get some more value out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think for newer players, it's easier to consider bombs as um, creatures and planeswalkers mostly and, and ignore kind of the other ones like you mentioned. Um, strictly because that is how the average new player will win the game, right? Yeah. So there's there's going to be things that, that can be bombs. You know, I'm thinking from a current set, for example, Experimental Frenzy. There's a lot of people that regard that as a windmill slam first pick um, and might, you know, might define it as a bomb in that case. But to a new player, I don't think they can extract value out of those things I, as well as an experienced player can. I'm actually going to argue with you a little bit there and that I think uh, Experimental Frenzy is value, I think it's so much value that it's going to push it to be a first pick in a lot of packs. But I think Mm -hmm. if we want an example of a non-creature bomb, Patient Rebuilding is actually a better one. Because this card, it's three blue blue for an enchantment. 
At the beginning of your upkeep, target opponent puts the top three cards of their library into their graveyard. Then you draw a card for each land card put into the graveyard that way. Essentially, if I play this enchantment and then don't really do anything else and they don't answer it, it will mill them out by itself while drawing me more cards. So like Experimental Frenzy, there's times where your opponent plays it and they just hit a land pocket and you're still able to get get through that and win. It's value, it's great value, and it, it may even fall into like good card draw, but I, I don't think it quite qualifies as a bomb, just a very good card. And and herein lies the difficulty of how do you teach somebody what a bomb is because experienced players like you and I, for example, have um, varying definitions. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, teaching a new player or uh, a player with limited experience... Um, sticking to those creatures, sticking to those things that you can turn sideways, or sticking to the things that are very obviously um, very, very good cards are the, are the things you want to do. So Planeswalkers and Creatures are your bread and butter when it comes to figuring out what a bomb is, and then your advanced stuff is going to be Patient Rebuilding. Because, you know, I, th- I think you look at Patient Rebuilding and you and I see it as a very, very good card. I can't fault a new player for passing Patient Rebuilding because they look at it and they're like, oh, it's a mill strategy, I know from my little tiny bit of experience that mill doesn't usually work in in limited, so I'm going to pass this card for a reason, like a good creature or a good removal spell or something like that. And I think I can't fault them for that because, you know, it's it can be hard to evaluate a card like patient rebuilding and realize that it can just win you the game. Sure. Um, so I think I think you're safe sticking to you know your really good mythic creatures, your really good rare creatures, your very good uncommon creatures, or your really good uncommon creatures, I should say, um, and then. You know, planeswalkers obviously. Um, nine planeswalkers out of ten, maybe tw- nineteen out of twenty, are usually bomb status. So I think you can't really go wrong there. But I think that's a good place to start. Agree. Let's do one okay. more example of a creature bomb, and then we'll move on to removal. Uh, I think Lathless was a good example, also from M nineteen. This was four red red for a six six flyer. Whenever another dragon enters the battlefield under your control, create a five five red dragon flyer. And you can also spend one in red to pump dragons you control by plus one, plus oh until end of turn. If you cast this spell and don't have any other dragons, you're still going to kill your opponent with it. It's a 6-6 six, six flyer. But if you do, it's just going to you know continue to, to pump out baby little dragons that will also kill your opponent. Uh, so this was just a very, a very scary card to face in its format. And I'd imagine it would be in most formats. Yeah, a common thread there. All three of those creatures had flying. Mm-hmm. All three of those creatures had additional value in some capacity. So the Baneslayer Angel had lifelink. The Doom Whisperer got you to surveil. Lathless got you either fire breathing or more dragons. Mm-hmm. And they're all cheap. Right? Like they're all what we would call below curve. So I think it's important that like that trend is very common amongst things that are are bombs. Sometimes you're gonna get bombs that are not evasive, mm-hmm. right? But they're gonna they're gonna have value in other places. So I'm thinking things like um God, I can't even think of an example. Gra- that doesn't Grave Titan is an excellent example. Uh, there it was uh, four black black for a 6-6 six, six death touch. When it enters the battlefield or attacks, you make two 2-2 two, two zombie creature tokens. Like yep. that, like all of the Titan cycle, there was a Titan for each color back in the day, but all of them were bombs. None of them had flying. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that combination of cheap in value or, you know, evasive in value or big thing and evasive, right? Like there's all sorts of these little metrics that can go in together. And once once you've recognized the pattern, I think it's fairly easy to identify those creature bombs, um, you know, from, from one another. Mm-hmm. And it should help your first pick order. You know, do I pick this rare? 
or do I pick this uncommon creature instead? And I think this will help too as we compare this with some of the other categories. But the main thing to remember from a bomb is that if you play the bomb and your opponent doesn't kill it in the next turn, it is going to begin to close out the game for you. Now, whether that takes five turns, two turns, or one turn is relatively unimportant uh, because you're not going to be picking between multiple bombs. You're not likely to open three bombs and then have to decide which one is better. Uh, but let's exactly. let's move along to your next pick. If there are no bombs in the pack, it's time for us to pick removal. Removal is primarily in your deck to kill your opponent's bombs. Cheaper removal is better. Instant speed instead of sorcery is better. Non-damage or unconditional removal is better. So destroy target creature is better than destroy target non-artifact creature, for example. Removal generally speaking, is not for non-bombs. So I'm not looking to kill my opponent's 3-2 elephant with my removal spell. I'm looking to kill their Baneslayer Angel. I only use removal on non-bombs if there's no other option. So I've got a list of a removal spell from each color for us to look at and kind of think about what these do. The first one would be Lightning Strike, which is a red spell. It's one in a red for an instant. Deal three damage to any target. There are many it's, packs I have first picked Lightning Strike out of. Yeah, and it's 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 efficient and good quality removal. Now you you say right, you know, generally speaking, you're saving your removal for your opponent's bombs. You know, if you have a Lightning Strike in your hand and, a, and a, another piece of removal that is unconditional, you feel a lot better about using that removal spell on something that, um, you know, is threatening but maybe not necessarily a bomb. We've done this in the past where we've we've talked about on an episode rationing your removal and i think that's very important um a card like lightning strike is just so versatile you can use it as a combat trick if you have a first striker you can um you know shoot your opponent's planeswalker you can shoot your opponent's bomb that is usually four mana cost or less or three mana cost or less there's so many things you can do with this card um that makes it a, a usually a premium pick removal in most formats yeah and if they happen to be at three well just shoot it at sometimes their face. It wins, sometimes it wins the game. So I picked Pacifism as an example of a white removal spell. Um, we haven't actually seen Pacifism reprinted in a while, but there's variants of it that you'll see around. And there's there's usually something like it in most limited sets. Pacifism itself is one in a white for an enchant aura. Enchanted creature cannot attack or block. So this is unconditional removal, but it's not instant speed. If I attack my opponent and they block my 3-3 with their 3-3 and then use a combat trick to make their 3-3 win the fight, Lightning Strike can blow them out. I can use the Lightning Strike to kill their creature and then fizzle the combat trick. We're going to talk more about combat tricks in a minute. I can't do that with pacifism. However, most things that I need dealt with, a pacifism style effect, will absolutely do that. It's important to note that later, if they can remove the pacifism, they get their creature back. And if there's some sort of value tacked onto that creature that doesn't involve it attacking or blocking, they still have it. So if I pacify my opponent's Lathless and later they play another dragon, they're still going to get the token from Lathless, and they can still use her ability to pump that token. Right? So it doesn't do everything, but it sure does do a lot if they're attacking you with a 6-6 six, six flyer and you just need it to stop doing that. Pacifism can make that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, for black, I picked Deadly Visit. 
Although, honestly, there's a card similar to this in black in most sets. This particular one is three colorless black black for a sorcery destroy target creature surveil two. We've also seen Lich's Caress, which is functionally a very similar card. Three black black destroy target creature gain three life. This is sorcery speed, so it, it's not instant. I'm not going to get that chance to get them on a combat trick, but it's going to just kill the creature and it goes to the graveyard. It's not still in play, so any activated abilities or bonus abilities that it gets by just sitting around don't happen anymore. Uh, I mentioned Claustrophobia as a blue option. Uh, this was one blue-blue for an enchantment aura. Tap target creature. It doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. This is very similar to Pacifism, so it has a lot of the drawbacks that Pacifism does, as well as a lot of the upside differences. Creatures that tap to use an ability can't use them when you have Claustrophobia. And then lastly, I picked Hunt the Weak for green, as that's often what green does is some sort of fight spell. This one was three and a green. Put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. It fights target creature you don't control. That means if I have a 3-3 and Dave has a 3-3, mine will kill his as well as become a 4-4. It'll still have three damage on it because they've tumbled. So I may not be able to attack with it that turn, but I will in future turns. All of these are very good cards. I also mentioned a couple removal spells that I don't think are great, but I do think are necessary to point out that there's tiers within removal. Not all removal is created equal. So a, a card from a recent set is called Take Vengeance. It's one and a white, destroy target, tapped creature. Why is that not as good as pacifism? Well, first of all, well, I mean, I guess it's sorcery speed, so it's the same as pacifism, but um, generally speaking, your opponent will have hit you with the creature first, and it doesn't deal with creatures that don't attack, which there are generally speaking a few so for example guild mages in the mid to late game in guilds of ravnica might not attack and they might tap end of turn where you don't get an opportunity to um take vengeance or assassinate them mm -hmm. it's also never going to get a blocker out of the way so if you're in a mm -hmm. position where you know you've got a pair of tutus and your opponent has a five five and they're at four pacifism will win you that game uh take vengeance will not uh you also can't stack a bunch of take vengeances because again, as Dave's mentioned, you're always going to take a hit from a creature before you're able to use it. Meaning, I don't really want five of these. Because if they've connected with me with five bombs or five flyers or whatever it is, I'm not going to have enough life to actually kill the darn thing. Another oldie but still relevant one, because this effect is reprinted quite often, is Diabolic Edict. This is actually where the name Edict comes from. Uh, it's one in a black for a sorcery. Target player sacrifices a creature. Why is this not as good as something like Deadly Visit, even though it's cheaper? Generally speaking, when you give your opponent the opportunity to make a decision, they make the decision that is worse for you. Um, so in this case, you know, if you play Diabolic Edict um, or The Eldest Reborn, let's say, and your opponent has a bunch of creatures on board, they're just going to lose their worst creature or potentially even a creature that is stuck under a luminous bonds or pacifism or claustrophobia or something like that. So you often can't stack those two types of removal together. Yeah. The only time it's really good is when your opponent has a lot of, or only very good creatures or only one creature. And quite often you just have to play it and say, well, I'm okay getting this creature because I'm not going to get anything better. Yeah. Yeah. I've said that a lot when I've played Adix. Now it's important to remember that bounce Spells, something like Unsummon, blue for an instant, return target creature to its owner's hand, 
and combat tricks, which again, we're going to cover in detail in just a little bit, can act like removal sometimes, but they are not removal. So you don't want to pick them as if they are. It is absolutely okay to have bounce spells and combat tricks in your deck. In fact, you'll probably want a few. If you're blue, you're probably going to want a bounce spell. And if you're red, white, or green, you're probably going to want a combat trick. Even blue and black want them sometimes, but we're not picking them here. We're going to talk about them in just a minute. So those are the first two things we're interested in, bombs and removal. Now, the old school was evasion next. I don't actually think it's evasion next. I think it's value next. Value cards are creatures that have a good, reasonable-sized body and either enter the battlefield effects or useful tap abilities. So I'm going to do my first shout-out to limited resources here. They taught me about the vanilla test. The vanilla test was, how good is a creature for its mana cost? So generally speaking, two mana for four points of power and toughness is going to be fine. It doesn't matter whether it's a 1-3, a 3-1, or a 2-2. That's about a good rate for that size creature. A 1-2 usually isn't. So if the creature is a 2-mana 2-2 and it does something, either good or bad, frankly, it's probably going to be playable. And that generally scales up from there. So a 3-mana 3-2, pretty good. A 4-mana 3-4 or 4-3, pretty good, right? And we can continue kicking it up from there. If a creature has an awesome effect on it, but it's a 5-mana 1-1, it's probably not a good value card. Now, that can be broken by something like Ravenous Chupacabra, which we saw in Ixalan block. That was 2 black black for a 2-2 when it enters the battlefield, destroy target creature. But I'm not even going to count that as a value card. That's just a removal spell that happens to leave behind a body. So when we get into value, let's let's actually talk about some here. I mentioned Gravedigger earlier. That's a a wonderful example. 3 and a black for a 2-2. When it enters the battlefield, you can return a creature from your graveyard to your hand. We've got Mana War on this list. This We see this effect quite often in blue in various variants. Two and a blue for a 2-2. When it enters the battlefield, return target creature to its owner's hand. So this lets you play a creature while getting a, the effect of a bounce spell. If your opponent has put an aura on one of your creatures, you can bounce your own. If they've buffed one of their own creatures by putting auras on it, you can bounce theirs. Uh, we see a Flame Tongue Kavu variant nearly all the time. Uh, This is 3 and a red for a 4-2. When it enters the battlefield, it deals 4 damage to target creature. That one's very similar to the Chupacabra in that it's kind of just a removal spell with a body tacked on. Things we've seen more recently, District Guide from Guilds of Ravnica. Like, this is a pretty high pick for you in Ravnica draft, right, Dave? Yeah, if I'm base green or I'm, like, early in the draft, you know, the additional value of searching for a a gate or a, a basic land and putting it into, sorry, in your hand, I guess... It fixes you, it, it makes you hit your land drops, it's just good all-around value, and leaves behind a decent body. You know, Skittering Surveyor from Dominaria Draft is a really good example of that, too, where, um, you know, hitting in, in that format, hitting your land drops was so important in a lot of decks that cards like that just made your deck so much more consistent, and the fact that they left a body behind put it over the top and gave it that additional value. Yeah, agree. So District Guide was two and a green for a 2-2. When it enters the battlefield, you can search your library for a basic land or gate, that's a land type that's relevant in the format, and put it in your hand. Skittering Surveyor was three mana, colorless, so you could put it in any deck, uh, for a 1-2 uh, with basically the same effect. You search your library for a land and put it into your hand. Those are some examples of value cards. I also wanted to list some more. I think Pegasus Courser is a value card by this definition. Uh, this is two and a white 
for one 3-flyer. When it attacks, another creature you control that's also attacking gains flying. So the, the Pegasus Courser is going to make one of my other cards better while both of them are attacking, right? Um, Dryad Greenseeker was an, an excellent example of a value card, also from a recent core set. Uh, it was one in a green for a 1-3. You could tap it and look at the top card of your library, reveal it. If it's a land, put it into your hand. Conclave Guild Mage. Uh, this is something from the, the current set that we're playing now, Guilds of Ravnica, uh, where it's green-white for a 2-2. You can spend um, six five mana. Five and a white for a token. Yeah. Five and a white for a 2-2 two, two token. Five and a white for a 2-2 two, two token and tap it. Or you can tap it and spend a green and give your creatures trample. So like this is just a good body that you can play. And then later, if you have a bunch of mana and no cards to play or nothing to do, you can use that mana to still affect the board with this. So I, I think these are all examples of value cards that we're going to prioritize pretty highly because the body is relevant and they give us an effect either when they attack um, just by tapping them to do something uh, or by spending mana in them, or maybe they just come into play and something happens. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think a lot of ex- experienced people might listen to this and they might argue that some of these cards that you mentioned may be bombs or maybe like not bombs, but you take them above a lot of the rares and, and mythic creatures um you know dry green seeker might be an example of that if for to some people and i think it's very important to note that you know this this is a general guide this is a rule of thumb and as you start playing with these cards as you start drafting these sets you'll start to realize which uncommon creatures or uncommon um maybe enchantments or something like that right are are very very good value so much so that they borderline on a quote-unquote bomb yeah right and i th- i think the the definition or, or the line that is drawn there can be blurred in it depends on the format it depends on the type of player you are the style of magic you like to play you know some people might look at straight card draw as additional value and take it over a creature for example in in some formats so keep in mind that this is this is the basics and these are are kind of generalities to get you started um and people are going to tell you that like you know whoa why are you passing that card it's it's absolutely insane and you're like well i I took removal over it you know I, i think that's fine um, and that's going to get you through most of your drafts with an acceptable draft deck, a good draft deck. Yeah. Um, and where you're going you're to look for those edges later on. So just, just keep that in mind. Yeah. And th- that's what I want to do here. I, I also still want to argue that, it, again, by my definition and what I'm trying to teach here, a bomb is a card that wins the game on its own. Dryad Greenseeker, I mean... It can certainly contribute to a win by drawing you a lot of extra cards, which is solid value. But like when my opponent plays a Dryad Greenseeker, I think I probably need to deal with that. When my opponent plays a Lyra in Dominaria Draft, which is three white white for a flying first strike angel, I think I need to kill that right now or the game's over. So the, the bomb cards are the ones that your opponent looks at and says, I am losing the game. You play it and they automatically are losing the game right now. That's a bomb. Pick those. Mm-hmm. So for me, Absolutely. once you've gone through value, we start to look at efficiency in creatures. And what I mean by this is just a good stat line for the cost, right? I listed some examples of just creatures with good stat lines. I'm just going to run through these real quick. Centaur Courser. Uh, we see a variant of this every so often. Two and a green for a 3-3 three, three with flavor text. It's a pretty good stat line. Uh, I've already mentioned Snapping Drake, but I'll mention it again. Uh, three and a blue for a three-two flyer. We're paying an extra mana over the courser. We lose a toughness, but gain flying. It's a pretty good deal. 
Colossipede was four and a green for a five five with flavor text. That's still pretty good on an efficiency test. Even better is Baloth Gorger from Dominaria. Two green green for a four four. That's a good stat block. And if you happen to have extra mana later, you can make it even bigger. And then I mentioned here also uh, a Cursed Minotaur uh, from Emin Ket, which was two and a black for a 3-2 Menace. Menace means if you're going to block it, you have to block it with two creatures. So that's a neat ability too, because it's semi-evasive, it's harder to block. And then if they do block it, they're going to block it with two creatures, which makes your combat tricks even better potentially. So after we've gone through bombs, after we've gone through removal, after we've looked at... uh, value, that's when we start to look at just efficient creatures. Are there efficient creatures here that I can pick and play? Yeah, would you factor in, I guess, things with mana sinks kind of border between additional value and efficiency, I guess? Depends on what kind of mana sinks that they are. I'm thinking of like a 2-2 that you can pump for 5 mana to make it a 4-4, for example. I I think that's specifically going to be covered when we get to the the quadrant theory bit, because I actually did talk some about those. Uh, but I wouldn't factor that into it um, because there's a couple different ways you could look at a card like that. If it's a 2-mana two 2-2 two, two that I can spend 5-mana to pump, that's awesome. If it's a 5-mana 2-2 two, two that I can spend 1-mana to pump, that's significantly less awesome, right? So that efficiency that I'm looking for here is just can I can I get a reasonable body for the mana cost? Uh, the, the next thing for me, we're through Brave, so now we're just to Curve and Tricks. For Curve... What we're talking about when we say this is when when you lay out your creatures, your spells don't count because you don't often want to cast your removal spells as soon as you possibly can. You do want to cast your creatures as soon as you possibly can. So your curve, specifically creatures, is how many creatures you have for each mana cost. And as a rule of thumb, you want to play around 15 to 17 creatures in draft, and you're usually looking for something like 3 to 5 creatures that cost 2 mana, Four to six creatures that cost three, two to four that are either four or five mana, and then one to three that cost six. This is not hard and fast. This can change. You can build an aggressive deck that's playing a bunch more two drops, and you can play a higher end deck that's looking to play more fours and fives, and all of that's okay. But these are generally filler level cards. Some examples might be Grizzly Bears. This is literally the card that makes us call two twos bears. It's one and a green for a 2-2. You'll see that in various colors throughout various sets. Talarian Scholar. Two and a blue for a 2-3 with flavor text. Fire Elemental is another card that's just a curve consideration. Three red red for a 5-4. Doesn't have any extra text, but if you don't have any fives and you want one in your deck, it's not a bad one to pick up. And Colossal Dreadmaw is another example of just a curve card. Uh, it's four green green for a 6-6 six, six with Trample. Like... These are all fine cards to play. Nobody's jumping up and down about them. You can absolutely win games with them, but no one would really consider them a bomb. No. How many games would you say out of a typical course in a, in a course of a day that you win just by straight curving out on your opponent? And when I say by curving out, I mean like going two drop into three drop into four drop and then having a removal spell and just dealing them 20 in six turns. A lot. Somewhere close to half of the games I play probably end that way. It's surprising how many games you can win just by curving out or just having an efficient turn two, turn three, turn four, turn five, and your opponent cannot catch up. Um, so, you know, if, if you draft a deck that is 10 two drops and 10 four drops, 
and, you know, and three removal spells, it's going to be very difficult for you to get value out of turns three, turn five, sometimes turn six, depending on how much your removal spells cost, right? So you're going to be taking turns off where your opponent could be doing better things than you. Whereas if you spread that around and you have a bunch of three drops in there as well, um, you know, you have an opportunity to keep up with your opponent if you're on the draw and you have an opportunity to outrace your opponent when you're on the play. And I think, I think that is, especially in paper magic, it's a little easier online because you can see your curve develop if you're using arena or magic online, for example, but especially in paper magic, it can be tough to keep your curve in mind if you're not checking your picks after every time you make a pick, right? You're not looking through your pile of cards and sorting your cards out all the time. So as you're going through the draft, keeping that in mind and saying, you know, oh, I really need a two drop and it's middle to late pack two or something like that. I better start looking for those. Not necessarily early draft consideration, usually. Mm -hmm. um, but also when you're picking and you're thinking about curve, you want to focus on your lower drops first, filling in your twos and threes and fours. And the reason is, is because you have fewer slots for your fives and sixes and sevens, for example, right? So if, you, if you're faced between a seven that is good in the seven drop slot and a three that's good in the three drop slot and you need both, you know, if you take your seven and then never see another three again, you're in trouble. But if you take a three and never see another seven, you're still okay because you probably have a lot of good fours and fives to go in to fill that role instead. Mm -hmm. So twos and threes are, you know, there's a lot of them out there, but don't take them for granted. Yeah, agree. But this this is mainly like at this point in the draft, you know, we're several cards in. There's a pretty good card that costs five and a pretty good card that takes three. It doesn't really matter which one you take as a new player. Just look for which one you don't have any of yet. And the last thing in this little bit is combat tricks. It's only a combat trick if it's instant speed. We've seen sometimes sorcery spells that make creatures larger. Those aren't combat tricks. The instant speed is important because you need to be able to use it while you're in combat. So after they've blocked or after you've blocked. Cheap tricks are better. Two mana or less is the sweet spot. And tricks that pump power and toughness are better. I've listed a couple examples of what I consider to be pretty good tricks. And one example of what I consider to be kind of a bad trick, but still playable. Vampire's Zeal was white for an instant. Target creature gets plus two, plus two. If it's a vampire, it gets first strike. This is only one mana to use, so it's very easy to hold up during your opponent's turn. It will win you most combats, even if your creature isn't a vampire. And you can also use it if they use a damage-based removal spell on your creature to save it. So if I have a 4-3 flyer, they cast Lightning Strike, and I respond with Vampire Zeal, my creature's going to live. Unnatural Endurance was a black combat trick. It gives the creature plus 2, plus 0, oh, and regenerates it. Uh, this is a bit of an old card, but we see functional reprints of this all the time. That again means that our creature is going to live through most combats and probably win most combats. And it also functions as a way to keep a creature alive when they try to use a removal spell on it. And then another one that's been reprinted many times and we'll see something like this is Titanic Growth. Uh, one in a green, target creature gets plus four, plus four. That will win you nearly every combat you could possibly get involved in and is also enough damage that sometimes you can win a game because they don't block your creature. And they think, well, I'm at six, I can take another hit from this 2-2, two -two, and all of a sudden, gotcha. I listed mm -hmm. Make a Stand as an example of a combat trick I'm not super huge on. I was certainly still playable, but it was two and a white. Creatures you control get plus one, plus oh, and indestructible until end of turn. 
And this one leads us to what a lot of people will talk about magical Christmas land. The idea is I attack my board of three threes into your board of four fours and you block all of them and line them up perfectly so that this combat trick means I'm going to eat all of your creatures and all of mine are going to survive. And that certainly can happen with this card, but your opponent gets to fiddle with that by deciding how they want to block. When you make that attack with a bunch of creatures that aren't going to trade into their board, they're going to know that you have something. And a good player may figure out exactly what you have and block in such a manner that you don't get that much value and are, in fact, are quite far behind because they've got a crackback on you. So be careful about these combat tricks that cost more than two mana. The other big problem with them is that they're very difficult to leave up on your opponent's turn unless you're completely empty-handed and it's the last thing you have. Mm -hmm. Mana cost is the one of the most important things in your combat trick, and the reason is is you want to be able to to double spell and and um our friends over at lords of limited talk about double spelling a lot um but that means that you're you're able to gain an advantage in the game whether that be tempo or board advantage by playing two spells when your opponent might only be able to play one on a turn and you know if you have a one mana combat trick and you have five mana in play that opens up a lot of options for you you can play a four mana creature and then hold up your one mana trick whereas if you have a two mana trick or a three mana trick that becomes a little more difficult. So obviously cheaper, uh, cheaper the better. Um, and then you mentioned toughness. I think that's huge for obviously protecting your creature or even just being able to give it indestructible um, or some kind of regeneration clause or something like that is is huge. Um, what was the one recently? Adamant Will plus two plus two and indestructible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of my, my one of my favorite combat tricks. I think from I think it was Dominaria mm -hmm. um, at least in white anyway because it was just so. You know, it, was a, it was one in a white, so it was reasonably costed. It gave the plus two, plus two, like most tricks do. Um, but the indestructible clause came up very frequently, I found. So cool. Looking looking for all of those things to go together. Now, um, sometimes I end up, especially in Arena, I end up with a draft deck that is very limited on removal in pack three. And sometimes you'll hear me say, like, I'm going to take this trick because I might need it as removal. Um, keeping in mind that if you're watching me and I'm doing that, I am resolving myself to the fact that I'm going to get blown out by this using this combat trick trying to do it as removal because that is not what it is there for generally speaking right um and I'm accepting that fact because maybe I'm lacking removal in other places so you might see me kind of prioritize tricks above things at late in the draft if I'm lacking on things like that but I think generally speaking when you're drafting you can get pieces of removal late in the pack uh, or sorry tricks late in the pack so if you're, if you're light on removal and you have to rely on tricks, I think that'll just come naturally as you're drafting your deck. Yeah. And that, like, again, this plus the next piece, which is quadrant theory, which I honestly think is what made me best, like gave me the biggest level up in magic. Like you have to keep both of these things in mind as you're drafting. But just as a quick review, draft brave. Your pick order should generally follow bombs, removal, value, efficiency, curve, and then tricks. So let's let's get into step two here, which I learned this from Brian Wong in an older episode of Limited Resources. If you do a little bit of Google Foo, you can find this one, and it's a great theory. It's a great episode, and they go a lot deeper in it there than I'm going to go here. But I, I'm going to give you the basics. The idea of quadrant theory is that there are four states in most magic games that are going to appear pretty consistently, and that is you're curving out, you're just playing your spells like for their mana cost on that turn. So you're playing something on turn two, on turn three, on turn four. That's something that happens. 
you're ahead. In other words, you're winning this game. If nothing changes, you're going to win this game. You're behind. You're losing this game. If some, if nothing changes, you're, you're going to lose. Or you're at a board stall. Your opponent has some creatures. You have some creatures. Nobody's particularly winning. There's obviously a lot of variation within these quadrants because I can be losing by not much. My opponent has a flyer and I can't block it, but it's only dealing two points of damage. That's honestly somewhere between behind and a stall because as soon as I answer that flyer, the game's basically filled, right? But this is a great way to understand why some cards that people say, wow, that's a really good card. This will show you why it's a really good card. Or when someone looks at a card and says, wow, that's a really bad card. This theory will actually show you why it's a bad card. So let's actually go through these relatively quickly, but talk about some. First, we'll talk about curving out. I'm going to first give you some examples of some cards that are very good when you play them on the turn that you could play them, but are also good later. One is Typhoid Rats. This is black for a 1-1 with Death Touch. If you play this on turn one, you can attack with it a couple times. If you, you can also block with it immediately if you need to. But if you draw it on turn six, it's also pretty darn good. So it kind of plays in multiple quadrants here. But it's, it's good when you play it on curve and good later. Uh, Dave mentioned this card was actually one I think he was thinking of. Fathom Fleet Firebrand. One in red for a 2-2. You can spend one in red and pump it. Like... That was one of the best red com commons in its its uh, set, wasn't it? I I believe that's where we settled, yeah. Uh, from the recent set, Passwall Adept. Uh, this is one in a blue for a 1-3. You can spend two in a blue to make target creature unblockable. How many games have you won or lost with Passwall Adept so far? Oh, a lot. A lot. Yeah, it's the, the repeatable value on it. Like, you can top deck it and still get things through later in the game. And, you know, the only time it's really bad is when your opponent is about to kill you. But, I mean, there's not a lot of things that are really good at that point anyway, so. Yep. And another one that I'm, I listed here, which is not a creature, is Essence Scatter. Like, there's plenty of times where I've drafted a blue deck. This is one in a blue for an instant counter-target creature spell. I've played a lot of blue decks that didn't have good two-drops. So I was playing this as my two-drop with the idea that if they cast something on turn two or three, I'm just going to counter it. I'm not going to think about it. This is just what I'm planning to do for that turn. But if I draw it later and hold on to it, maybe I can still get some value. I also want to mention a couple of cards that are, are good when you play them on curve, but not good later. It's kind of an example to, to contrast these with. One of those was Vicious Conquistador. This is one mana for a one-two, when it attacks, your opponent loses one life. If you played that on turn one, it was going to get in some serious damage. However, if you drew it later, it really couldn't attack because your opponent's going to have, you know, a 2-2. A Anything blanks it. I listed Thoughtseize as the example of discard because this is the best discard spell I think that's ever been printed uh, short of things like him to Turok that are very old. We see Thoughtseize variants. These days, people talk about Duress and Divest. But let's let's use the original one as an example. Thoughtseize is one mana. Look at target opponent's hand. They discard a non-land of your choice, and you lose two life. Playing that early in a game can be quite good. 
You can see what their plan is, what they're up to, get rid of a key removal spell, or get rid of a key creature. However, if you draw this later in the game, when you're behind, it's terrible. Because you're already behind on board. There's creatures that are killing you and this doesn't interact with them. If the board is stalled out, then both sides are likely playing all of the creatures and removal spells as they're drawing them. Meaning there's really nothing for you to take. Uh, and it, if you're ahead, it, it's hard for a card to be bad when you're ahead. And we'll get into examples of that here in a minute too. But it, it just doesn't do anything for you. So I, I think those are two really good examples of cards that are good on turn one, but not good later. Another one from a recent set is Healer's Hawk. Now, there's some synergy built in here, and I think synergy is really a case for draft, I don't know, 102 or 103, maybe even 201. But Healer's Hawk was one for a 1-1 flying lifelink. If I could start with that in my hand every game, I would pick every Healer's Hawk I saw. It's pretty darn good on turn one, and it's in a format where you can augment it. However, it's a miserable top deck. Like, drawing it on turn 10 is just not what I'm interested in. So that brings us to cards I, I want to talk about when we're behind on board. And this is a scenario, I used this one as I was talking about this on stream today, where Dave has three three threes, I have a 3-2, and I'm at 10 life. I am behind on that board. What is good in that scenario? Can you think of a card that would be good in that scenario, Dave? Removal, a 4-4, four, four, um, just like anything that blocks a 3-3 three, three. Three threes are good in that scenario like creatures mostly or removal spells yeah yeah so i, I listed some that i think are, are quite good here uh one thing that he didn't mention because you don't see these very often in limited but they are quite good are cards like wrath of god this is two white white for a sorcery destroy all creatures so there will be some sort, and you'll hear these referred to as wrath effects, something that destroys all creatures. If you're behind, that is a unique card that will immediately put you to parity. He mentioned removal or creatures. How about both? I mentioned Ravenous Chupacabra earlier. That's kind of the best thing to draw in a scenario like that. Two, two black black for a 2-2 two, two when it enters a battlefield, destroy target creature. We will see every once in a while control magic effects. Control magic is two blue blue, gain control of target creature. That takes one of their threats, thereby removing it, and then gives it to you. That's generating a two-for-one. It's, it's value and removal, and immediately changes around a board. Dave mentioned good blockers. I, print, I, I wrote down Mammoth Spider as an example of a good blocker. Uh, this was four and a green for a three-five reach. Like, if, if you were behind in Dominaria, which is the format this was in, and you played a Mammoth Spider, you were usually stable. But any good blocker will do it. And then Dave mentioned removal. I used Artful Takedown as an example here from a recent set. It's two blue-black. Uh, one creature gets tapped. Another creature gets minus two, minus four. So that buys you a little bit of time and that one big thing isn't attacking you. And then it just kills another big thing. Now, there are some, some cards that are actively bad when you're behind. And I think it's important to point these out because these are cards that I tend not to value very highly. And like people will watch me draft and sometimes see me pass some of these cards and then not understand why I don't like them. A big one is Cancel. I listed this as an example, but most counterspells in Limited fall into this camp. Cancel is one blue-blue for an instant counter-target spell. If I'm behind, what is Cancel doing for me? It's rotting in your hand. Yeah, 
It can keep me from falling further behind, but it is not catching me up. Trumpet Blast was another example. Uh, two in a red, attacking creatures get plus one, plus O. Oh. If I'm not attacking, this really isn't helping me. Now, there's also another category of cards. Um, sleep is what I used as an example, and I want to let Dave walk this one through. Because uh, uh, sleep is two blue-blue. Tap all creatures your opponents control. They don't untap during the next untap step. As I was talking about this on stream, I had a lot of people say, well, sleep is good when you're behind because it means they can't attack you for two turns. Why am I listing it as bad when you're behind? Because after that two turns, they can start attacking you again. <laughs> right? Like, um, I mean, so sleep is a weird one because it is it is really good at parity and it's obviously really good at if you're ahead because you can close the game out but when you're behind all you're doing is delaying the inevitable generally speaking there's some games some game states where sleep will buy you that turn that you need to find a removal spell or to find another creature um but if the sleep was just that removal spell or creature instead then you're you're a turn ahead right of, of where you were if you had cast the sleep so Generally speaking, if you're casting to sleep because you're going to die the next turn, you're still going to die whenever the turn after, right? Or, or, or two turns down the road. You're probably not going to find enough cards to catch up in that short term. Um, but I think people get blindsided by sleep because it is a very good card when you're like looking to close out a game or you just need that extra, extra couple of points of damage. Um, it's just it's so miserable to top deck it when your opponent's playing nine merfolk on the other side of the table. And it's like, sweet, I'm dead in two turns instead of one. Like it just, it just doesn't do enough when you're behind. Yeah. And like, that's particularly why I wanted to include that card because it's a very good card. It's just not good when you're behind. And the, the main reason, like all of the things that Dave said, in addition, you have to spend a card for this effect. You only get so many cards you start with seven, you draw one a turn. There are other cards that will let you draw more, but generally speaking, you need to value that card in your hand as a resource. And if I'm using sleep to tap your blockers and kill you, well, that was a great use of sleep. But if I'm using it to stall for time, then I've basically thrown away a card for some amount of life or time. And unless the cards that I'm drawing after that are exceptional, it's not doing anything for me, right? A really good example of that is I had a stream the other day where I drafted two Time of Ices, and I love Time of Ice, but I had a game where I was so far behind that I'm just playing Time of Ice just to try to slow my opponent down and, and stabilize. And by the time I'd used both of my Time of Ices, and I looked at the board and my opponent had nine creatures and I had two, it's like, I can't win this game, and no, no number of Time of Ice is going to save me there. So it's really important to identify that, you know, a card can be good in you know, when you're ahead or at parity or you win you the game in certain scenarios and be absolutely terrible when you top deck it and you're behind. Correct. And because a card is bad when you're behind does not necessarily make it a bad card. You just can't have too many of those in your deck. Yeah. Right. And, and the ones that are bad when you're behind, you know, need to be very good when you're ahead or when you're at parity, for example. Mm -hmm. I'll do one more example here. Uh, Lava Axe. Uh, is a classic one we talk about a lot on a lot of podcasts and a lot of times evaluating cards. If you Lava Axe is four in a red, deal five damage to... Actually, it's three in a red, isn't it? Lava Axe is five, I think. God, it's been so long since I've cast it's, actual Lava Axe. It's been a while for me too, but let, let, it doesn't matter what it is. But four in a red for a sorcery, deal five damage to target opponent. If your opponent is killing you, 
Lava Axe is awful. Now, if you're ahead, Lava Axe can actually be pretty good, especially if your opponent's at 5 life. But when you're behind, it's just not going to stabilize you. Now, the, the next spot I want to talk about is cards that are good when you're ahead. Okay? So, some examples here are, again, Counterspells. We just talked about those. Cancel's bad when you're behind, but all of a sudden, if you're ahead, Cancel starts to look pretty good. Because now you can protect the fact that you're ahead. Uh, sleep, it, the, again, the card we just talked about that's kind of bad when you're behind is pretty absurd when you're ahead. Both of those cards will either let you maintain that ahead board state or slam the door shut. Uh, Lava Axe, which we mentioned, and I'll mention another one, Act of Treason. Uh, if you're ahead, Act of Treason is actually quite good. That's two and a red, gain control of target creature until end of turn, untap it, it gains haste. So if I'm ahead and I take one of your creatures and swing, I'm probably just winning the game. Now I have a question for you, Dave. What cards are bad when you're ahead? Um, board wipes. And I could hear your question mark. I literally have written on the paper, wrath question mark. Because if you're ahead, you kind of don't need the wrath, but it still feels kind of good to be holding it. Because what if they, they play something and you're not ahead? Yeah, I, I like to call those, like, I've been calling those cards um, escape pods or pressure valves, like pressure release valves, where it's like safety valves, where you're holding on to this wrath or this very good piece of removal, and it's like, I don't have to use it right now because I'm so far ahead, but if the table starts to swing, you know, start to go in the other direction, I have this to get it back in my favor, um, you know, if this game gets out of control, I can press the reset button, drop the nuke on the table, and we're starting fresh. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that. So generally speaking, there's not a lot of cards that are actively bad when you're ahead. And then the mm -hmm. last one I want to cover is a board stall. This is something that can happen quite often in a lot of formats where you've both got reasonable creatures and nobody really has good attacks or blocks. I've seen a lot of new players, and honestly, I've seen a lot of opponents too. They'll get into that scenario a couple turns go by, and then they just turn all the creatures sideways. And I start thinking about what tricks they can have, realize there's actually not any, and that they just got tired of staring at the board stall and aren't really able to figure out how to get past it. One way to do that is to include cards in your deck that are good in a board stall. One example of that is Horizon Scholar. This is two and a green for a 3-2. You can spend two and a blue to make it unblockable. If the board stalled out... That's a slow way to end a game, but if you can connect with it five or so times, you're probably winning. From a more recent set, we have Ocran Assassin. This is one green-black for a 1-1 death touch. When it attacks, all creatures that can block it must block it. That means your entire opponent's team has to block this creature. If they don't remove it before blocks, that means everything else you got is hitting them in the face. It's probably going to kill them. I listed Horizon Scholar here. Uh, which was four and a blue for a 4-4 four, four flyer and some scry value. But really, this is just subbing in here for any large flyer is usually pretty good in a board stall. And I listed Thundering Spine back as something that's good in, in a board stall. Uh, this particular one was five green green for a 5-5. Five, five. Dinosaurs get plus one, plus one. And you could spend, I think, five mana and make a 3-3 three, three dinosaur. But anything that makes tokens is good in a board stall because it will let you spend your mana to make more creatures and get past them. So a card like Slimefoot would also be a good example. That was one green black for a 2-3. You could spend four to make a 1-1, one, one, and when that 1-1 one, one dies, it drains your opponent for one life, and you gain one life. So those Repeatable effects. Yeah, repeatable, repeatable effects, effects are, are good. very good there. 
Yeah. Things that are bad in a board stall, mainly the things that are not great in a board stall are off curve twos and threes without activated abilities. So that two one that you put in your deck just because you need some twos is pretty miserable to top deck in a board stall. But it, it's not that it's necessarily bad. It just doesn't change the stall in your favor. So now that you know that information, let me tell you briefly what to do with it. And then I, I think we'll call this one a podcast and come back with draft 102 next week. As you're looking at a card, you need to evaluate it by how good is it in each of these three quadrants. And I have some examples for you. But you also need to recognize that a head is the least important quadrant. If you're winning the game, you don't need something to make it in sooner. Generally speaking, most of the cards that you draw will at least be okay when you're ahead. Whereas cards that will catch you up from behind are unique effects and should be valued highly. So that's the one that I'm going to prioritize the most. Brian Wong said in that episode that Borderland Minotaur was his favorite card because it's actually okay in all of the quadrants. It's not great in any of them. So as we talk about a few cards, we're going to talk about where is it good, where is it okay, and where is it bad. Borderland Minotaur was two red red for a 4-3 with flavor text. If you cast that on turn four, it's okay. If you're ahead and you cast that, it's okay. A little bit more ahead. If you're behind and you cast that, it's okay. It can block something and maybe you won't be so far behind. And if you're at a board stall, it's okay. It's a decent creature to add to the board. So like this is just an example of a card that is straight up average in all of those quadrants. That's why it's his and my favorite card. Let's look at a card like Murder. <coughs> Pardon me. Which is one black black. Tell me what Murder does, Dave. <laughs> it's probably you get a drink of water. It is one black black for destroy target creature. Unconditional removal. High pick. At instant speed. At instant speed. This is good when you're behind because it kills their biggest creature. When you're stalled because maybe you can kill a creature and now you can get an attack. Maybe they had a spider and your flyer couldn't attack. It's good when you're at parity, like that's kind of the same thing as a board stall, because now all of a sudden you can get in. And it's it's good when you're ahead, like now you're going to stay ahead. They can't play a blocker and get you. Where it's bad is casting it on curve. The last thing I want to do is turn three, murder something, or use three mana to murder something, because I just don't have anything else to play. So you don't want to, like this is a good example of removal, it's good in every scenario except when you curve out. So that's why I don't even count removal when I'm looking at my curve. I'm just looking at creatures. Mm -hmm. We already mentioned uh, Pegasus Courser, but let's let's look at this one through this lens. If you're behind, it's kind of not great. But then again, most three drops aren't. It's, it's a 1-3 mm -hmm. flyer when it attacks something else gains flying. The problem is it just doesn't block particularly well. The it, the only thing it has going for it is that it blocks a flyer. Mm -hmm. Right? But like the one power is just your your opponent's gonna slam in with their three threes and it's like, great, do I chump or do I take another three? Like this doesn't it doesn't do much. Correct. If is it is it amazing on curve when you turn three this or you like, yeah, got it. Oh yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's good, I'd say it's okay. Like, I, I, if, if you're curving out and you went two drop into this, I, that's usually very good. Yes, that would be very good. If I don't have okay, a turn but, drop and I play this on turn three, it, it's just okay. It's it's not blowing anybody's mind, but it's okay. However, if we're at a board stall, this card is absurd. 
because now my biggest creature that you couldn't that you could block now you can't and if i'm ahead it is slamming the door shut on you because again you can't even draw a chump blocker to get in the way so i'd say it's bordering on okay and good when you curve it out i'd say it's excellent when you're ahead or stalled and i'd say it's kind of pretty bad when you're behind but don't hold that against it most three drops aren't very good there uh, I wanted to give an example of a card that is bad and people will say is bad, but may not understand why. And when you view it through this lens, you kind of get it. Fog. We've talked about this one a lot. It's green mana for an instant. Prevent all combat damage that would be dealt this turn. It's bad if you cast it on turn one. Because it's not doing anything. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. And then it's bad when you're ahead, behind, or stalled with an asterisk. Because... Yep. If you're ahead, you don't need it. If you're behind, it is going to buy you another turn, but much like Dave said with the sleep, you, you've kind of discarded a card for that effect. Whereas if the card that you had instead of Fog was just a Borderland Minotaur, for example, all of a sudden you can block. And on a board stall, it doesn't do anything unless you can entice your opponent to race you. So that's the one scenario where Fog actually does something. And I quite like Fog out of the sideboard once I know that I'm playing a deck that wants to just deal damage to my opponent and they are also playing a deck that just wants to deal damage to me. So when there have been Fog effects and I'm playing green-white against red-white, for example, I might bring in a Fog because that might win me the game. But generally speaking, I don't want this card in my deck. Yep, I completely agree with all of that. And then I mentioned another one from a current set, Inspiring Unicorn. If I'm behind, how does this one st stack up? Oh, it's pretty miserable. It's four mana for a 2-2, two -two, right? Yeah. It's yeah. two white-white for a 2-2. Two -two. When it attacks, creatures you control get plus one, plus one. So if I'm behind, this is pretty bad. If I'm curving out, or if I just play this on turn four, where does it stack up? It's okay. I mean, I used to like it a lot more, but after playing with it a lot, it just didn't do as much as I had hoped. So it's okay. It's maybe better than a Borderline Minotaur if you have a board. It's not if you don't. Yep. Uh, if we're stalled, how is it? It depends on the stall, I think. But it's it it's either average or poor because it's such a below average creature. Mm -hmm. um, it, it it depends on your board, but if you have a very good board, it can swing the game in your favor at the cost of throwing it away in, a, in combat. Yeah, I, I would agree with that yep. too. If you're ahead, how good is it? I mean, it's decent when you're ahead, but there's probably better four drops to have when you're ahead. Yeah, I think I rated this one as bad when you're behind, okay when you're into stall or curving out, and pretty good when you're ahead. Because if, sure. if I've already got good attacks, this just makes them better. So, like, mm -hmm. this card is okay in a couple of the quadrants and good in one, but, like, there's a lot of contention about whether this is a good card or not, and it, it's, it's an interesting piece to talk about the value of building your deck. If I build a deck and just accept as I'm building it that if I ever get behind, I'm losing, then a card like Inspiring Unicorn goes way up because all of a sudden I can take a bunch of one-drops and two-drops, all of which are cards are bad when you're behind, and just say, I'm going to try to be faster than my opponent. So if I'm taking that strategy and I plan to go one drop, two drop, three drop, inspiring unicorn, I'm winning that game, right? Now, if I'm not actually able to curve out, if if I have three lands and inspiring unicorn and a couple of combat tricks, I have to mulligan. And we've already done an episode about mulliganing. Go listen to that one. It'll help you out. But get through this one first and learn what you're doing. 
I think another card that really needs to be evaluated on this, because I have a lot of people that that think very differently than me about this, is Divination. Two and a blue, sorcery, draw two cards. Let's walk it through the, con- the, the quadrants. Is it good when I cast it on turn three? Okay or bad? Um... That's an int- I think there's an asterisk on that one because I think it depends on what type of deck you have and what type of deck you're running. But I think for the average new player draft deck, it doesn't add to the board. So generally speaking, you're going to want to be playing a creature instead of divination. So I would say it's okay to pour for your average player. Yeah, I, I rated it as okay. Like if you've mm-hmm. got if you have the choice between playing a creature or a divination on turn three, you should often play the creature. But if you have three lands, some four drops, divination can help you find the lands. So it mm-hmm. absolutely it's okay. So it's, it's okay. It's, it's okay. okay. Is it good, okay, or bad when you're behind? It is so bad when you're behind. Sometimes, most of the time, it depends. Like if it depends on how far behind you are. But if you're like losing the game next turn, it's not going to save you. Generally speaking, um, if you're a little bit behind, sometimes it'll find you a spell to play and, and catch up. But generally speaking, it, it it's usually not so great. Yeah. So I had it bracketed between bad and okay when you're behind. When you're mm-hmm. stalled out, is it good, okay, or bad? I think it's probably at its best when you're at parity because you can gain an extra card above your opponent, right? And you can get maybe a little bit deeper in your deck to find those cards that'll help break that board stall. Um, so I think it's probably at its best when you're not at risk of losing. So you're not taking a bunch of damage, um, and your opponent's not threatening you and you can dig it deeper in your deck and start drawing some, maybe double spell or, or draw some, some removal or something like that. I listed it as okay when you're stalled mm-hmm. with the idea that it doesn't break the stall itself, although it may find you something that will, right? So it's, it's, yeah. it's possible to draw two lands, which is not good. It's possible to draw your bomb in a removal spell, which will break it next turn. But since you don't know what you're going to get before you cast it, for me, it's okay in a stall. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to look at it. I think, um, and this might be draft 201 or just magic 201 in general, is is that you know when you're when you're in a stall, sometimes gaining little incremental advantages add up in the end. Right, um, and, and that's what a card like divination will do. The problem is, is it's not repeatable, right? Mm-hmm. Is it's a one to one shot, right? So you'd obviously want something that is repeatable more often than, than a divination. But um, you know, I think I think the the better players or the people the the players with better decks, you know, divination obviously goes up in value there because you know if you're a great drafter and you have a nine out of ten or a ten out of ten deck, um, a divination in a board stall looks a lot better than somebody who maybe just has an average deck and is not going to get out of that board stall. So I think that's one. This is probably a contentious card, but I think that's one where where the opinions vary depending on how much experience you have playing and drafting. I think they do, but I think I can make a pretty compelling argument after you answer to me, how good is divination when you're ahead? I mean, it doesn't really matter when you're ahead. <laughs> it, it exactly. It's okay when you're ahead. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't like slam the door shut, but it does put you a little bit further ahead. So if, if divination is okay when you cast it on turn three, and it's okay when you're behind, and it's okay when you're stalled, and it's okay when you're ahead, it's actually the same card as Borderland Minotaur. It is the blue Borderland Minotaur because it's just okay in all of these quadrants. Now, everything Dave said matters, right? Like the quality of your deck, the better your deck is, the better drawing cards would be. 
and it does have value stapled on it because you're getting two cards for one. You're just taking a turn off to do it. And I think that this illustrates the different strategies of the color pie. Blue is more interested in drawing cards to accrue value. Red is more interested in casting good creatures and having, you know, burn spells or removal and combat tricks to kill you. But the cards function the same in a lot of decks and that they're simply okay in all of the quadrants. Now, I'm not going to go through every card in Magic's history here, uh, but I think I've given you some examples of cards that are good when you're behind, good when you're ahead, which really doesn't matter, and then good when you cast them on curve, and good when you're in a board stall. So pair that with everything we learned about Brave drafting, and you can draft yourself a very good deck. The last little piece I will throw out here was also something I picked up from Limited Resources. This was an excellent episode with Marshall and LSV, and it was about cards that affect the board. They called it Cab Theory. If you want to dive deeper on this, this is a great episode from them to go listen to. And it's saying, when in doubt, if you're a new player, pick something that does something to the board. What they mean is, if you're not sure and you're picking between Divination or Borderland Minotaur, just take the Borderland Minotaur. It can attack and it can block. You only have so much room in your deck for spells that don't kill a creature or make one of your creatures better or, you know, have a a powerful effect. So don't overvalue those cards. As a new player, just try to draft things that can attack or block well. Most games of limited magic are won by attacking and attacking, right? Dealing 20 points of damage to your your opponent. So um, just keep that in mind, right? And next, maybe next week we'll talk about drafting win cons. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the biggest thing for me is next week I want to get into what makes a card first pickable, staying open while you're drafting, and sending signals. So I, I had hoped to get us a concise one-hour episode. I think we've actually got about an, an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes worth of content on this. So tune in next week and we'll give you part two of this course, Drafting 102. Absolutely. And if you have any questions about this uh, episode, you can send it to us on Twitter or in Twitch chat, um, and we'll be glad to answer the good ones uh, that, uh, that if we have time next podcast. And for sure, jump in the stream. Like We ended up talking about this. I, I thought this was going to be a, a stream where I would prep for the podcast for about 30 minutes, and we just go over the basics and kind of get some ideas down. We ended up talking about this and going deep for four hours. I had people in chat suggesting cards and asking me to rank them through the quadrant theory. And I think I did it with most of the uncommons in Dominaria and a lot of cards from Guilds of Ravnica. And it was truly insightful to like look at why a good card is good. And I had people in chat being like, I knew Vivian Reed was a good card, but after going through quadrant theory with it, I can see why it's a good card. And then we looked at something like Ghost Form. And they were like, I, I knew that was a bad card, but after running it through this, I can see why it's a bad card. And after that, I did a couple of drafts, and I did them very slowly. Thankfully, on Arena Drafting Against Bots, you've got all the time in the world, so we could go through and rank all of the cards in the pack and then identify whether they're bombs, removal, value, efficiency, and etc., and go all the way through. So feel free to stop by my stream or Dave's stream and ask us questions about this. I would love to talk about this more. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it is my favorite topic to talk about. So I, I do love limited magic and I wish we, we could talk about it more. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. So tune in next week for draft 102. Yeah. Is that what we're going to call it next sold. week? All right. Draft 102 sold. Uh, thanks to face to face games for the host and all of the support. 
Um, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, aside from just listening, and we're obviously very thankful for all of our listeners, you can find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash menformoto. Where can they find you and ask you questions about why Ghost Form is good or bad? Unlimited. <laughs> find me at twitch.tv slash simulan. Uh, that's where I am streaming Monday through Friday for nine to ten hours a day. You can also find me at Twitter. I'm at simulan. That's S-E-M-U-L-I-N. And I am at Twitch and Twitter under DCivilian. That's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. I love seeing all the comments and questions and discussions that we get on Twitter. We've had some good ones over the last couple of weeks. So I look forward to more in the future. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Aloha.